G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks part podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Unfortunately, Ben Along will be away for the next couple of weeks. Today is Tuesday the 18th of April and this week's topic is the lack of doctor's bulk billing. Then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with RD and finish off, as always, with the 4X bottle top question. But Ooh. before we get into that, all of that, how are you today? Oh, I'm travelling well, DK. Back uh, here in Melbourne, back in the big smoke at, uh, for another three nights of the Melbourne International Goody Festival. So again, if anyone hears trains uh, and other things going by, that's so, because I'm in a different location. So, yeah, we're up here for a three, uh, another three nights. Uh, last week we saw saw a few comedians, Sarah Schaefer, Daniel Kitson, and Mel Buttle, and a late night show with six comics. And I also went and saw a couple of lesser-known comics, Tom Whitcomb and Glenn Zepp. Never heard of them before, but uh, I thought, oh, I'll give them a, a go. They're people I don't know, so I'll see how they see how they. Uh, see how they present themselves and yeah i was glad i went i was glad i went along uh smaller rooms i got to sit up the front uh my wife's not a big fan of sitting up the the front in the comedy shows but uh sat up there only got picked on a couple of times but it was friendly picking on so that was that was good value so work out whether i'm going to do that again for these three nights i uh, got a few picked up going off to see whole foot tonight which i'm excited about so yeah, that's what that's on my plate, and that's what I've been up to. What about that's you? Cool. How, how's how's things up there? Uh, school holidays have officially ended on Monday. Thank goodness. On the Monday. Kids, yeah. So just just this uh, yesterday, uh, the kids went back to school. Uh, some schools uh, do have. Uh, like student-free day, but uh, not the school that my children attend. So they were back to school yesterday, which was nice. Um, and they're nice and tired uh, after school today. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we shouldn't have any interruptions or anything today. Though it is interesting, my wife was saying to me just before we started recording, she walked past uh, and said, are you cold? As she, as she walked back out with it, getting a jumper on. And I said... Because oh. it's traditionally freezing up there in Brisbane, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm quite a bit further north of Brisbane, so oh, north, uh, yeah. for, for our listeners that don't know, I live in Queensland, which is uh, sort of northern Queen, northern Australia, uh, and it's normally it, earlier today it was a nice, uh, a lovely twenty eight degrees Celsius. <laughs> um, <laughs> I should say it is fairly windy, but. But I've just had a look at the temperature, <laughs> and remember, this is jumper weather we're talking about. You know, coat weather. It's twenty-two degrees Celsius right now. So oh, twenty-two, and you need a jumper. Look, twenty-two, I, and we need a jumper. Yeah, I had enough exposure to Queenslanders to know that as soon as it gets down twenty-five, it's it's like you feel like you're being pelted with icicles. I don't. I've. I've then you guys run in for bloody jumpers and track decks once you get into the uh, the low twenties. So that's <laughs> still amusing. Twenty two degrees and weather. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's we always say you can spot the Queenslander because yeah. you're right. It's under twenty five degrees. We'll all still be wearing shorts, but we've got a jumper on. Um, 
and yeah it always makes me laugh but you know it's nice and comfortable that way it should be said my air conditioner is set for for 24 degrees celsius so anything colder than that is you know it, it's it's cold as far as i'm concerned so well i hope, um, you, hope you survive good good luck to you and your family that's right i mean we do have a bit of a winter here i mean for us of course you'd come here in winter and think it's lovely you'd probably probably go swimming uh at the beach you can always tell who who the tourists are um at winter when they're all in the water um yeah because i think you know the coldest it gets we have like a week of of you know 10 degrees or something like that and we're all absolutely freezing wow Um, a whole week of winter a whole week of winter yeah don't know know. how you survive up there it's tough it's tough i tell you (laughs) (laughs) um you know that's that's why i live here so it's a lovely lovely part of the world lovely part of the country it is a good part of the country i do i do agree with you on that i'm and i don't live there but i do love getting up there All right, let's kick off. Have you or someone you know have had trouble finding a doctor's office that accepts new patients and is also bulk billing? If that's the case, you might be one of the hundreds of thousands of Australians that are going to have to look beyond their electorates to find a GP clinic that actually offers bulk billing to new patients. The folks over at Clean Bill Health of the Nation report have shown us how bad the situation really is. Ardeet, you live in the Mornington Peninsula. That is the electorate of Flinders. So I've had a look, according to the Clean Bill uh, National Report, and there are 46 clinics in Flinders, and 40 of them are accepting new patients, which is pretty good. Yep. Uh, only seven of them are bulk billing. So that's a bulk billing rate of 17.5%. Which, uh, as you might get into, is is not, not too bad. Not the best, but, not the worst. Yeah, that's, I know that sounds bad, but, mm. oh, listener, you just wait. <laughs> the, the Tasmanian electorate, so a bit south, straight south of the Mornington Peninsula, we head down to Tasmania, which includes – so the Tasmanian electorate of Franklin, which includes the city of Hobart, uh, has an incredible 0% bulk billing rate. Out of 25 clinics wow. – only 19 are accepting new patients and none of them offer bulk billing. The average out-of-pocket expense for a patient for a 15-minute consultation is $48. Wow. My old stomping ground of South Sydney in the electorate of Wentworth uh, has a bulk billing rate of 13%, but an out-of-pocket expenses of 56% on average. 56 percent or 56 bucks sorry 56 dollars on average 56 percent of your income that's what you have to pay (laughs) yeah that's that's right (laughs) Uh, 56 yeah a huge 56 dollars that's that's pretty wild um Though up the harbour and up the river in Parramatta, the situation is completely different with 55 clinics and a whopping 45 of those 55 are bulk billing. So they have a 90% bulk billing rate just up the river, which is absolutely wild. That's interesting. Um, 
Queensland really isn't any better than the southern states. Uh, the electorate of Brisbane, of course, being in the city of Brisbane, has 66 clinics and only three bulk billing practices. Uh, meanwhile, slightly north of that on the Sunshine Coast, the electorate of Fairfax, which coincidentally used to be Clive Palmer's old seat, uh, also had a 0% bulk billing rate. Um, and all of northern Queensland had an under 30% bulk billing rate. Some areas, such as the Cape York Peninsula, had none at all. Not a single clinic that was bulk billing. Um, when we look at the states overall, New South Wales is the best, and it averages out at 49% bulk billing. Victoria at 35%. Uh, WA and Queensland tied at about 28%. South Australia at 25%. And Tasmania has the abysmal rate of 8%. If you had given me this question on the Forex bottle top lunch, I wouldn't have even come close. I was genuinely surprised at how low the national average was, and I was very, very surprised at places like ACT and Tassie, and that there are some electorates there that have got a 0%. I wouldn't have even come close to this one. I share that sentiment. I genuinely am shocked and kind of horrified, actually, that there are places, you know, and we're talking like like Tasmania, uh, the city of Hobart's not, you know, it's not a huge city, but it's not, it's not that little either. It's, you know, it's not, it is a city. It's not a little country town, you know. The fact that there are not a single bulk billing clinic in just the city of Hobart in my mind, is pretty shocking, let alone the full electorate of, of uh, what did I say it was, um, Franklin, which includes the city of Hobart, but it also includes a lot of southern Tasmania. So there's only like, I think there's three or four major electorates in Tasmania. So it's not, these are large areas that cover a lot of people and there's just no doctors there that are working uh, that you you otherwise, you know, are going to have to put your, your hand in your pocket. So Clean Bill's data um, has been calculated by finding the percentage of clinics in Australia that bulk bill an adult during normal business hours for a standard consultation. That differs from the government's data, which is assesses all services assessed by a GT GP. So... We're not really going to go into the politics of this, but it is worth remembering. Of course, we had a change in government last year. However, the previous government, uh, the policy throughout the COVID-19 pandemic was that no one was going to pay out-of-pocket expenses for the vaccines. As yep. a result, that brought down the government's data. They're looking at it going, oh, 80% of, of, um, of things are covered by bulk billing, but of course the COVID-19 vaccine threw those numbers wildly out of out of whack because ev almost every Australian was getting at least two vaccines. So not everyone goes to the GP a lot. Um, some people, you know, only go once a year or, or even less than that. But of course, those people were suddenly thrust into getting the COVID-19 vaccine in, in a lot of cases. And that really threw the government's data out. Of course, that's not the case anymore. Um, most people having already been vaccinated, it makes it suddenly makes the even the government's data look a lot worse all of a sudden. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of people throwing around, oh, well, you know, the Labor government's failing and all that sort of stuff. But really, if you actually look at how the numbers are being calculated, this isn't something new. This is something that's been going on for, for a while. 
Look, so, it has. So, I, I know you said uh, not won't be getting too much in the, the politics. So I, I I do want to make a little bit of comment about sure. the politics. <laughs> the politics of it there, and that's just on the the blame game. The the federal minister Mark Butler. Um, th- this is from this an SBS News article published 16th of April 2023 by Rayanne Tamer and Kenneth McLeod. Uh, quote from that federal health minister Mark Butler blamed the former coalition government for hiding the data that revealed the drop in bulk billing experience during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's Labor's side. But then we have uh, the Liberal Party Shadow Minister for Health, Anne Rust, says, bulk billing rates, which were at record highs when the coalition left government, are now plummeting because Labor has broken the confidence system. Now, they're both taking shots at each other. Neither of them did anything about it or are doing anything about it because... If you're looking at the impact of the uh, COVID uh, vaccinations, you only have to look back a couple of years beforehand and you see what the real figures are. And as much as I have a um, a low opinion of a lot of the bureaucrats, they're usually pretty good at maths and they understand why they get a spike in there. So this back and forth between the two of them doesn't help anybody and my opinion puts both of them in a poor light. There's no solutions coming out of either side. Yeah, look, I'd agree with that. And and you're right. Look, this 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 isn't something that's all of a sudden been happening. It's it's not it's not no. something in the last few months. It's it's something that has been, you know, festering for a while. And I'll sort of get into that in a minute. So just to reiterate, the clean bills data is basically if myself as an adult walk into a clinic with my Medicare card, having booked like an appointment during regular, normal workday business hours, will I be charged for that appointment? You know, I book at 10 a.m. to see my doctor for a standard consultation. I got I don't know. I got an appointment. Um, I got a cough, or I need a prescription filled for regular medication. Something like that. That's what this data is meant to show. And honestly, it's just staggering the cost of healthcare that the average Australian is paying for. Remembering, of course, that we pay for this through the Medicare levy and through our, our yes. taxes as well. So we. We're double paying for this. It's not like America or other parts of the world where we have to pay up front for our medical costs. These costs are already subsidized. So really the question comes to why? What's going on? Why now are we really talking about this? So Professor Danford Lim explained that the proportion of benefits paid to health professionals has basically continuously reduced over the last decade, um, which basically forces a lot of GPs not to accept bulk billing or do what they call mixed billing practices, where some things are bulk billed, some things aren't, depends on what you're there for, and, and also depends on how long you've been a patient for. So from the 1st of July 2022, the Medicare benefit paid for a GP attendance was increased by only 1.6% to $39.75 per consultation. That was an not increase. Not close to not close to inflation, is it? No. So that was an increase of 75, uh, sorry, 65 cents from the previous financial year. 
Professor Lim explains that some of these costs, so of course, that $39.75 per consultation doesn't go directly just to the doctor. There's no doctor's clinics that I'm aware of, and I would wager there's probably none in Australia that don't have, you know, additional staff, including, um, you know, receptionists, admin, some places have nurses, et cetera, et cetera, cleaning staff, all that sort of stuff. So some of those costs- Plus, of plus their account, their accounts who have to work out all, all this, plus uh, the- uh, in complicated complications of ex, of insurance that the average person doesn't have, and you would need to also have some uh, s- some legal advice as well. So you, of course, you, you have a whole lot of ancillary uh, uh, obligations. Exactly. So, like you said, rent for the clinic. Of course, Ooh. a lot of these clinics are in are in some some are in shopping centres and things like that. So a lot of these aren't owned. Uh, premises that they that they you know they do as a business they have rent uh, utilities practicing license fees of course they have memberships to the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners practitioners uh like you said insurance premiums we've got wages so once you sort of deduct the operating costs uh the actual gp the actual doctor generally on a good day will make say ten dollars of profit for them you know for their own wages from each consultation so the other thing is current regulations prohibit GPs from squeezing in more consultations per day. Um, therefore, it's not really possible for them to work harder just to make more income. Sorry, uh, just, just run, run that by again. Yeah, so I actually didn't know this either, but they're actually limited by law to 30 patients per day. Are they? They oh. cannot see more than 30 patients per day. That's an individual doctor or that's a... Uh- uh, yeah, a, a, as an, an individual an, doctor. An individual doctor. So, at a maximum, huh. you know, they can only make, and I know this sounds like a really large number, but it's not. They can o- so every individual doctor per yeah. day can make a maximum amount of one thousand one hundred ninety-two dollars fifty if they bulk bill. So they have a capped income at that. Which I know that sounds like a really large number. But realistically, considering that, that, that based all, on, just to clarify for people listening, there that's that's based on that uh, whatever that amount was. Thir- yeah, thirty nine seventy five. So that's not taking into account. Um, that's not taking into account all those other costs we've got. And if we do that, I think you gave a rough uh, estimate of about uh, t- ten bucks a, a visit. That caps them yes. at a, about three hundred bucks a day, which three hundred bucks a day. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's not, you know, I think we get, we get, um, we love this idea of, oh, you know, all doctors are rich and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But the reality is a lot of doctors, if they're bulk billing, yeah, look, you know, they're not exactly poor, but they're not, they're not filthy rich buying the latest Mercedes every year and that sort of stuff. So, and, and I also should say, I do know personally, I know a couple of doctors and man, do these people work hard. They work a lot harder than most people I know. Uh, like I know tradies that earn more money than than some doctors. So yeah, um, it wouldn't surprise me at all. 
So for such a critical thing, this obviously hasn't kept up with inflation, like you said. So what's the solution? <laughs> this is a problem that's been, I feel like the previous governments have really kicked the can down the road um, on this one. Uh, the Treasurer has said that that they're going to be reviewing the bulk billing funding in May's budget. Uh, so that may provide some relief, but I doubt it's going to have the punch that's really needed to bring this. You know, we're sort of talking that that, that 39.75 per consultation realistically is going to need to be more like 70 or 80 dollars. That's the sort of, you know, they're normally charging that 39.75 on top yep. of the bulk billing amount that they're getting. So, um, I, I should also say, just in case anyone's confused, when we say they get thirty nine seventy five per consultation from Medicare, if they charge you, say thirty nine dollars as well, they get that on top of. It's not, it's not instead of. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. So basically, if you're if you're paying anything out of pocket, it's on top of the um, the the Medicare rebate. Ah, uh, not rebate. Medicare um, payment. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it, to, to stop, to, if we wanted to say, you know, the vast majority, at least over half of all clinics in Australia are, are accepting bulk billing clients, we would need that $39.75 per consultation to look more like 70 something dollars or closer to $80. Yep, because you, you pose the uh, question a moment ago about what can you do about it, and I would argue that the market has already solved half the problem, and half the problem has been solved for the doctors who are saying it's just not enough. This is what we need to survive, and this is what we need to keep us uh, participating in in being a GP. This is our extra price. So the market's telling us what you're inferring there uh, about the amount of extra money that needs to be paid. Now, there's no way in hell that uh, you're going to be able to sell that politically to say no. essentially essentially double it. You might have to do something like, you know, a, a, to a, I don't know, 10% every year for some other thing. I'm sure they'll come up with some convoluted scheme that, that sounds great off into the distance. But the bottom line is uh, doctors have spoken and most of them are saying we're not working for that level of wages. We can get patients with this amount of out-of-pocket expenses, and that leaves government in a position of, well, just what do you do about it? You can't force doctors to minerve for patient, to patients for a lower um, wage. In fact, as a, as a precedence of uh, influencing uh, what we can make, it would be a, it would be a horror precedence. Aside from the fact that. <laughs> You couldn't sit either. I think we've got a real problem here. Yep. Yeah, the genie's been let out of the bottle. Yep. And I think the best way to move forward, if I was the treasurer, is I'd make it really clear how this works. Like, do a sort of breakdown like we have. So, shine the light on it and then... And then you need to increase that amount and basically say, we're increasing the amount so that more doctors will bulk bill. If your doctor still doesn't bulk bill, you need to ask them why. 
and basically put it back on the doctors and say, you know, if you're not bulk billing now that we've increased the amount, um, you know, you, you, you still should. Because there will be practices that prey on people's ignorance yep. and that go, oh, well, you know, you didn't know that we're now getting paid what we should be paid, but we'll still we'll still clip the docket on the way out. I don't think that'll be – I think that'll be less common, but there's always going to be stuff like that. Um, there, there will, and I suppose the other, the, another potential solution that comes to, to mind that I can imagine them putting in is them saying, well, if you blow a certain income threshold, uh, you'll essentially be subsidised. Unfortunately, that'll go the way of a lot of the subsidising scripts. Um, subsidising schemes. God, get it out. <laughs> Subsidisation <laughs> schemes is what I'm trying to say, uh, and that that will end up pushing up prices anyway. But if there's enough uh, enough uproar about it, people are in a demand that they've got something put in their pocket to cope with the high prices because doctors are not going to come back on their price, and I don't think they should have to either. No. You're right. And, and the other thing is, of course, uh, of course, this, we're speculating at this point because we don't know what the, the budget is going to look like in May. Um, but at this point, we go, well, where's the funding going to come from for this? Well, that's a, that's a whole other set of questions. You know, we, can, we can discuss what should or shouldn't happen, but... Uh, Health is an enormous expense, and you're quite right. Where's the money going to come from? And unfortunately, it's... they don't have the bureaucrats don't have much imagination. So I can make a few old guesses where it's going to come from. Well, we got these. We got submarines now, so we got these. We can start exp- mining the bottom of the uh, harbour. Yeah, you know, we'll find find a couple of nuggets of gold. Uh, look, you know, I. There, there are there are solutions to this problem, but it's, in my opinion, I think at least in the short term, in the next sort of five years, it's much more likely uh, that most people are going to continue to have to pay out of pocket. That amount may be reduced, the amount of money that they're paying, but I doubt that it's going to go back to what it used to be, where they, you know, these these costs. Um, where these, you know, you just didn't pay anything at all. Of course, there are people that don't pay anything at all. I think a lot of pensioners, uh, like a lot of elderly people, ironically, they use the health services the most. And I think a lot of clinics bulk bill, you know, patients over seventy-five or or over over eighty and stuff like that. So, mm. um, I know uh, healthcare card. Patients, I'm not sure if they get automatically bulk billed, so that that's the sort of lower, lower econo- economic, uh, socioeconomic people. Um, they can have it's from Centrelink. It's called a healthcare card, um, and I think it does give them, uh, you know, like a slight concession. It's I don't think it's anything particularly fancy or anything like that, but. Right. Right. Um, of course, the Department of Veteran Affairs, uh, interestingly enough, I was talking to my physio about this the other day, um, mm-hmm. and he explained, because obviously they're not, they're not um, GPs, but they are allied health workers and they do get paid Medicare benefits. Uh, anyone that's gone to the physio, though, very rarely 
has probably not it has been completely bulk build. Physios generally don't bulk bill. Um, there normally is a, is a gap. Uh, though he told me that because I see him and the, the Department of Veteran Affairs pays for it, and he told me that the Department of Veteran Affairs pays significantly more than Medicare. So we already have government agencies that foot the bill for medical treatments and pay a higher rate. I don't believe it was quite as high as, say, like a private health insurance or something like that. I think they sort of pay the top rate. But he did say it was it was quite a bit more than the Medicare rate. Um, so, you know, there was no there's no gap or anything for me. Um but yeah, no, I thought that it was quite interesting. So we we do already do have uh, government organisations that pay that, though there is only I think there's half a million veterans. So we are talking about a lot smaller pool of people and a lot bigger pool of money. So yeah. and I suppose too, it's it's a uh, it's currently a seller's market. You know, there's we we don't really have an ex of uh, of doctors or medical people. Uh, so they have a little bit more ability to set the prices they want. Exactly. I think I remember reading a statistic a while back, and I think it was 13% or it might have been 18% of graduate doctors in Australia become GPs. The rest of them become specialists. Well, there you go. Look, if they had been thrown out of the voice challenge, bottle top challenge, I wouldn't have been close to that one either. If you'd have yep. asked me, I would have I would have thought it was somewhere between somewhere forty and sixty, and I would have my guess would have been fifty five. That's that's ridiculously low. It's extremely low. That's probably the other reason why um, you know. And the other thing, of course, is because the it's it's all about money. Unfortunately, hmm. um, being a GP is a very hard job. You have to be. Uh, uh, your knowledge, your medical knowledge has to be really, really huge. Um, and you're seeing lots of patients. The turnover is quite high. You know, it's sort of the worst case situation for a doctor outside of a hospital. Um, if you're a specialist, say you're like a ENT, an ear, nose, throat specialist, yep. your body of knowledge required for that specialization is very small. And of course, you get because you're a specialist now, um, you get paid a lot more. So there aren't, as far as I know, there really aren't any bulk billing specialists. They're employed by, they may be employed by like the state health service, um, but they, the state health service, you know, pay them a full rate to do their job. So it's sort of, you're almost a fool to become a GP if you're a new doctor. You're better off finding something you like, specialising in it, and laughing all the way to the bank. So well, it's probably why you see those figures that you you do, and it probably probably equates with uh, a number of people who have a uh, probably got a, a strong vocational side to them, uh, who who genuinely do want to help people. Yes, and I think that's also why. You know, we see a lot of foreign doctors in Australia, a lot of foreign GPs. Um, mm. I think that's partially why as well, because uh, visa, if you're a doctor and, and overseas doctor and you want to move to Australia um, and you're a GP, it's like we'll roll out the red carpet for you because 
we simply don't have enough of them. And unfortunately, some of them that are GPs are going, you know, they're going back to, to other lines of work or they're transferring into more specialized trades just because it's a tough job and you're not paid enough to do it. So obviously the solution here is always you can get anyone to do anything if you pay them to do it. So yeah. Well, as you said, the, uh, the, the May budget is going to, uh, going to tell us a, a little bit more uh i feel i feel like we tend to say this just about every week but i think we might be revisiting this topic in the future as well very possibly as i like <laughs> to say watch this space yes. we may come back to it so. <laughs> <laughs> okay you ready for some history Let's get into it. All right. This week in Australian history, April 16th to April 22nd. On this day in April 1868, a uh, roll linking the Queensland town of Dolby to Ipswich is completed. So that was 1868. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2003, the Australian Army's Special Operations Command begins a four-day chase of the North Korean ocean freighter Hong Su off the coast of Lawn in Victoria. And uh, I, I sort of vaguely remembered this, but had to look it up. And uh, apparently there's heroin smuggled from the Pongsu, which is a North Korean cargo ship, uh, onto an Australian beach. Uh, Australian military boarded Pongsu in Australian territorial waters four days later, and it was suspected of being involved in smuggling 125 kilograms of heroin. Uh, that was the value it said was 160 million. I don't know if that was there or then, but whichever it is, a shirtload. It, uh, it is. I, I <laughs> vaguely remember this yeah. when it happened. Um, and it's just such a weird thing. I can't believe like it's sort of been forgotten because. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such a wild story. So, just to recap, an, a North Korean freighter cargo ship yeah cargo ship was shipping heroin like huge amounts of heroin into australia was intercepted by the army special operations group which is also called tag uh and they boarded it like out of a movie they fast roped from a helicopter Onto the deck, and they also attacked with the small boats, the the rigid hull inflatable boats, yep. uh, and secured the the Fong Shu and brought it to Sydney. Um, oh, it's Fong Fong Shu. Is that how you pronounce it? Oh, I'm not sure, or maybe it's Pong Su. I'm not. I'm not sure. Oh right, I thought it's Pong Su, but anyway, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, yeah, wedded to I'm that not, pronunciation. Yeah, I'm not. Not quite sure. Um, and of course, it was sunk. Uh, eventually, so so the crew well, members three years later because that's yeah. what I, like it took them four days to catch it. They put it into dock and it was racking up all these bills. And then there was apparently three years later uh, a joint exercise between the Royal Australian Air Force and the uh, Royal Australian Navy. Where 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 the Pongsu was sunk by two GB ten pi two laser guide guided bombs from an yeah. F-111, and this got the deliberate destruction of the freighter was to deliver a strong message to international drug smuggling rings that the Australian Federal Police and, Co Police and Commonwealth Government would take all measures necessary to stop illegal drug importation. So that's had a dramatic effect on it. <laughs> yeah, look, I don't know that... Um 
it probably really had the effects that that they wanted to but i'll tell you what uh i've seen a video of the destruction of it and it was pretty cool to watch so (laughs) i mean it just it's it's a cool thing to watch so you know if that was all the value we got out of it and far as far as i i um, think (laughs) it's cool you know Um, oh I'll, i'll have to i'll have to let up April 17th, 1861, on the Burke and Wills expedition, uh, Charles Gray died dysentery near Lake Massacre, South Australia, on the return journey from Gulf Carpentaria. <laughs> Dies of dysentery near Lake Massacre. Not, it's gonna, that's that's <laughs> brutal, right? No, no, that's it's, it is brutal. That's so poor, yeah. <laughs> poor bugger. Um, it was got the Burke and Wills expedition was organised. Society of Victoria in Australia in 1860-61. So basically they went from, uh, had the objective of going from Melbourne up to the Gulf of Carpentaria and then back. So it was a massive journey by anyone's uh, calculations. Oh, even today, that even would today. take you, oh, this would take you st- like several days driving on modern well, I was going to say paved roads, but a lot of them aren't paved um, through the outback. But still, to do this on foot yep. back then, absolutely incredible. What a wild, wild journey. Yeah, it's, it's impressive. It's mm. impressive. Near 35, uh, Australia's national airline Qantas operates its first overseas passenger flight from, uh, from Brisbane. Can you guess to where? Uh, first overseas flight. I yeah. want to say it's to New Zealand, but that doesn't count because that's a domestic flight because New Zealand's part of the Commonwealth of Australia, as we've already established. So oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's probably Southeast Asia. Like it'll be like Hong yep. Kong or Singapore or something. Oh, very good to Singapore. Nicely yeah, done. Yeah. Oh, well written. Uh, speaking of that area of the, the world, 2005, the Bali Nine, a group of nine people later convicted of attempting to smuggle heroin from Indonesia to Australia, worsted in Indonesia. Uh, they were trying to smuggle 0.3 kilos of heroin in Indonesia in April 2005. Uh, the two ringleaders, Andrew Chan and Mayaran uh, Sakumaran, were sentenced to death and executed in 2015, and the other six uh, bar one guy for imprisonment, another one got 20-year sentence, uh, was commuted in 2018. So, And they it, were executed by firing squad too, which it seems a bit barbaric, but it, honestly, I, don't, I remember this was a really big deal when they were executed a few years ago. Yes. The fact that they were executed by firing squad and not, say, um, lethal injection or, you know, hanging or whatever. Like, you know, this is obviously quite grim. But I have always been of the opinion that a firing squad seems like a pretty good way to go if you're going to have to, you know, if you're going to have to be executed. Yeah, like I'm... In terms of the ways that can be done, uh, it would be up near the top for me as well. There's some um, other – anyway, as you said, let's not get too grim, but there's, there's some other ways that are really not on pocket list. Uh, yeah. April 18th, 1831, the Sydney Morning Herald, Australia's old newspaper, is first published in Sydney, New South Wales. In 1951, 
Journalist and anthropologist Daisy Bates buys in Adelaide. In 1986, the 22nd Annual Teen Week Logie Awards are presented at the State Theatre in Sydney, with Daryl Summers winning the Gold Logie as the most popular Australian television personality. He was a bloody force to be reckoned with, Daryl Summers. <laughs> he was on He was yeah. on everything, wasn't he? He, he was on everything, yeah. Obviously. Isn't he still, he's still doing stuff, isn't he? I'm sure he is. Look, every now they wheel him out for something, and I think there was a hey, hey, it's Saturday um, reunion or something about five or six years ago. But look, good to him. He's he's always seemed yeah, uh, pretty likeable and, and genuine. And the little anecdotal things you hear about where people have in the, the supermarket or something is is approachable and affable. So yeah, look, I got I got a bit of a soft spot in my um my heart for Daryl Summers. Don't know the bloke, but just how he comes across. Yeah. Uh April nineteenth, seventeen seventy, uh Captain James Cook and the crew of HMS Endeavour first sight the eastern coast of Australia. So it was seen seventy. Kind of a big uh, deal that one. Yeah, it was. And then in 1984, Vance Australia Fair is proclaimed as Australia's national anthem and green and gold are proclaimed as Australia's national colours. So doing just a bit of a, a look back on that, uh, Vance Australia Square Fair was written by a Scottish born composer, Peter Dodds McCormick, uh, first performed as a patriotic song in Oz in 1878. Uh and this one I remember because I was I was fairly young. Replaced "God Save the Queen" as the official national anthem in 1974, following a nationwide opinion survey, only for "God Save the Queen" to be reinstated in January '76. However, a plebiscite to choose national song in '77 preferred "Advance Australia Fair," which was in turn reinstated as the national anthem in 1984. Uh, and God Save the King Queen became known as the Royal Anthem. So I didn't realise that there had been that uh, that back and forth. Yeah, there you go. I'm I'm too young to remember this, but I, hey. I'm actually surprised. If you were, if, again, if this was the uh, the bottle top question, <laughs> how old is Advanced Australia Fair? Uh, knowing that it was written uh, back in 1878, I, I actually would have thought that it would have been the national anthem before the 70s. I would have thought it would have been like maybe like the 60s or something like that. But I, I can't believe that it was um, it was that late. Yeah, there you go. 19- yeah, was, yeah, surprise dates for me too. Yeah. yeah. April 20th, 1836, John Batman and his family arrive at Port Phillip in present-day Victoria and settle on Batman Hill. Um, his parents are later murdered, and he goes on a wrath-filled surge of vengeance. Oh, no, sorry, no, Batman. Yeah. So, well, yeah. The, the question I had <laughs> is, <laughs> was Batman Hill named after him, or was it a wildly massive coincidence? Yeah. Thought, Look, I've got to live there, don't I? <laughs> Let, let's go with wild coincidence. I think that's a, <laughs> a bit more entertaining. <laughs> 1908, 44 people are Killed and 400 injured after two trains collide at Sunshine Railway Station, the junction of Ballarat and Bendigo Railways. Uh, now, that one in 08, uh, that was the Victoria's worst rail accident in terms of death and Australia's second worst after the 97 Granville disaster in which 83 people died. So, look, I hadn't, until I'd looked this up, uh, I hadn't heard of that, um, that uh, train collision. 
So basically from the, the bottom line, as I saw it, there was a signal saying they should stop, but there was two locomotives play on the, the back of um, a train that's only just starting to leave the station. So, I, yes. had, I had heard of this, but only, and this is a, a bit grisly, um, when I was at uh, HMS Cerberus, which is down on the Mornington Peninsula, uh, there was a, during meal times, occasionally you would have a side and it was always called train smash and i was like what and it was (laughs) it was inspired by this particular incident which is horrendous right um and it was basically mashed potato uh tomatoes and like onions together all mixed up and i was like i asked like like, you know what's with the name and they explained and i was like that's horrendous but it's still a thing to even to this day even over a hundred years later um yeah, so that's the only reason I know about this this train disaster. So, yeah, well, it was look, there was a new one. It was a new one to me. Uh, finishing off April twentieth in nineteen fifty four, in the Petrov affair, uh, Evdokia Petrov seeks political asylum after the plane carrying her back to the Soviet Union lands at Darwin with her escorts disarmed by Commonwealth uh, police. So that was started to have a little bit of a dig in there. The Petrov affair was a Cold War spy in Australia concerning the deflection of Vladimir Petrov, a KGB officer from the Soviet Union, from the Soviet Embassy in Canberra in '54. Uh, the faction led to a royal commission, and the resulting controversy contributed to the Australian Labor Party split of 1955. It was a story in itself. So. Look, who knows? We might get into that um, in in detail in another one, as as we want to say. We, we should be taking note of these, actually. Yeah, we should start running a list. Um, yeah, this is one of those ones again that I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been more sort of pop culture around it. That Cold War. You could make a really mm. cool Cold War spy film based on this. Um, yeah. And again, it's you know largely forgotten. I don't know. I, people don't really talk about it or anything like that. So it's it is it's interesting. It's one of those things. It is. It is interesting. Um, going on to April 21, in April in 1861, on the Burke Wells expedition. Let's see how they're going. Burke, Will and King return to their base camp at Cooper Creek, having crossed the Australian continent from Melbourne to the Gulf of Carpentaria. I bet they were bloody relieved. God. It was because they. I think they took out, like it was, it was like a year or something that they took, wasn't it? I'm sure. Uh, it, it, it was. It took, yeah, it was something. Well, let me just scroll back to what we had. Uh, it was organised by the. Hmm, so that was eighteen sixty one. He died. So been on the way. Well, there you go. Twentieth of August eighteen sixty is when they set off. Right. So if they made it back on the twenty first of April eighteen sixty one, it didn't. Yeah. It didn't quite take them a year, but still, it's a hell of a way. It's a hell of a way. Exactly. Exactly. So good luck to them. 1970, the Hutt River Province, a 75-kilometre property out Southampton, Western Australia, declares its independence from Australia in response to new wheat production quotas, becoming Australia's first micro-nation. Oh, God bless them. I love love the Hutt River Province. It is a cool thing. I deliberately left this off when we did the deep dive in secession. 
a couple of weeks ago. I deliberately left this off because I feel like it might be a topic of its own one day because it is, it's sort of, you know, uh, we could sort of talk about this for hours, I think. Um, yep. They, it, it's a micronation in Australia, of course. The the government of Australia doesn't recognise it at all. Um, but, you know, good on them. I, it's kind of fun. I, for me, I look at it and just say it, it's a bit of fun. So, Look, I do too. I, I certainly hope it catches on. I mean, as you, as people remember from the subject uh, of secession when we talked about it, I'm strongly in favour of it. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I would take us towards it. When I get to WA, I'll definitely go there. Uh, it is quite a bit of a tourist attraction. I do know people uh, that have been there. Uh, and I've actually met, uh, when I lived in Germany briefly, I met uh, some people that had been there from Germany, which was kind of a ah. weird weird thing. I was like, oh, wow. Um, so it is a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of a tourist attraction. It's, it's quite cool. So I definitely ah, want to go there. Get to see the king. That's right. That's right. April 22nd, 1788, Captain Arthur Phillip, the first governor of New South Wales, sets out to explore Sydney Harbour. Um, 1857, the colony of South Australia achieves responsible government. Huh. First time it ever bloody happened. Uh, <laughs> after the first session of the bicameral parliament of South Australia is held. Uh, and in 1917, uh, we finish off with this. Uh, painter Sir Sidney Nolan, known for his paintings of Ned Kelly, is born in Carlton, Victoria. So that's our week in Australian history, April 16th to April 22nd, which means... It's time for the 4X <laughs> Bottle Top question. Thank you so much, Adeep, for that. Um, it's been a really interesting week. I'm always surprised at some of these dates, and I'm learning so much, and I'm sure a lot of others are as well. Same here. So this one, I'll read you the question, and I needed, I had to know more because this just did not sound right. So I was like, there's no way, 4X, you've done it again. You've made me look like a fool. <laughs> um, so I did a bit of a deep dive. But anyway, here's the question. What city introduced the world's first prepaid postage system in 1838? What city? What city, yeah. I'm going to have to ask for a hint on this. Is it an Australian city? It is an Australian city, yes. Oh, God, I was going to say London because I thought there was that the Penny Black. Um, yes, so <laughs> that's that's where the whole the rabbit hole began in 1838. 1838, and it's Australian city. You know what? I'm going to say Hobart. Hobart, yeah, no, no, no. no. it's Sydney. Oh, okay, well, uh, Sydney, Sydney. So, okay, so I read this and I was like. No, that's not right. It, it, no, that can't be right. So, oh boy, did this take me down the rabbit hole. Um, it turns out the history of postage is very long. Um, <laughs> it's, it is genuinely interesting, though, because it wasn't just like the concept of postage. It's also the, post, the concept of prepaid postage and how that works and everything like that. So, originally uh, in 1680, 
The London Penny Post was established where letters and parcels could be sent inside the city of London uh, with a stamp, and it only cost one penny. Though, so I was like, "Oh well, that that's it, right?" Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. though, it was it was literally a stamp, like a like a wax stamp um, that they would. So you'd take it, they'd stamp it, and then it would go. But what I found was that it, it actually wasn't always a prepaid system and sometimes deliveries would be paid for upon receipt Hmm. which is kind of wild to me now because this very rarely happens today where you pay for the postage upon delivery as opposed to paying for it prior um and this created this weird situation where of course if someone couldn't pay uh their package may not be worth the amount that the delivery was for and, and all this sort of stuff so anyway the Colonial Postmaster General of New South Wales, called James Raymond, introduced the world's first prepaid postage system in 1838. Wow. Do you want to guess what uh, what system they used? It wasn't a postage stamp like we understand today. Do you oh, want to guess? Well, uh, hang on. Before I ask you that, yep. let me explain. So the Penny Black uh, was the world's first adhesive postage stamp, a modern, you know, paper stamp that we understand today. Ah, uh, right. That was created in 1840, so a couple of years after this design from Sydney. The problem with the Penny Black, it was only in circulation for less than a year because the... Because it was black, they would use a red ink to indicate that it it had been sent, Mm -hmm. but the red ink could quite easily be rubbed off, so you could Ah. reuse a stamp. The Australian system sort of doesn't get around this. Like, it does, but it doesn't. So, it's not a stamp. How do you think they did it? Oh, well, my first first guess had to be is you you tied something to a bottle of rum with some rope. Um. Given the currency then, how would they look? My first thought was um, a, a wax type of uh, of seal, but I'm reading between the lines a little bit on what you're saying. It's implying some sort of uh, staining. Um, close, it, it, like yeah. where your let, mind's let going is, me, is, yeah. Is, yeah. You're you're on the right you're on the right path, um, and I, I feel I feel terrible because I think I led you astray a little bit. Um, so what they actually did was they pre-stamped like embossed a sheets of paper that would then be folded up into envelopes. Ah. And so then they would use like an ink on the outside of the paper, like the envelope itself, to indicate yeah. that it'd been used. And ah. this was two that's a pretty years. good idea. Oh, it's actually such a brilliant idea. Yeah. And it, this was two years before the invention of the adhesive postage stamp, which was the Penny Black. And as we've, I've just oh. explained, the Penny Black was actually no good and didn't even last less than a year. After that, they became they, – they did it the other way around. So they, they created a the, the same stamp, but they printed it in red ink, and then they used black ink to, to indicate that it had been used. Right. And that was much more successful, so – but I, I just love this idea, this cl- just a very clever idea of using these pre sort of like stamped or embossed envelopes and you just stamp yeah. them. Of course, the downside is 
it's literally only a letter, but people said yeah, a lot sure, of letters back then. Sure, sure, but the idea is still good. Oh, fantastic. A fantastic idea. It wasn't, I should say as well, I, I, I'm really curious if James Raymond had previously been privy to some conversations back in London because this was like a a craze for the time. Like it wasn't, I don't think he came up with the idea and everyone copied him. I think it was more, you know, he heard things through the grapevine and thought he would uh, Come up with some system of his own here in Australia, but he really his finger out and made it happen, didn't he? He made it happen, and he made it happen in such an elegant way. It was a fantastic way of doing it. So, um, and of course, postage stamps today ubiquitous. Well, somewhat. Uh, yep. I can't think of the last time I mailed something. Probably when I had to do jury duty, um, ah. <laughs> <laughs> or at least I got called up for it. So oh, there's a callback. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh, well, that's, right. another, that's another another interesting thing that uh, the Forex Bottle Top Challenge has given it. It's so much more than just beer. It is. Oh, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's uh, the beer is aggressively average. It's perfectly fine, but it's nothing special. Uh, but the Forex Bottle Top question really is always quite, quite good. So, oh, so thank you so good. much. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Australia Talks. I've been your host, DK. Come and join us at r slash Australian. Let us know if you have a topic or if you'd like to be a guest on the show. Of course, if we've got anything wrong, please let us know as well. Was that what I said about the stamps? Was that right or wrong? I don't know. <laughs> let, let us know if we're completely wrong. We'd love to hear it. Any suggestions or criticisms, feedback is always welcome. Otherwise, thank you so much. And remember at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Good night. See you later, Dave. Thanks very much. See ya.